Okay, so uh, gentlemen, thanks for joining in. Um, I, there's no reduction in the pretentiousness of calling this the last me to talk podcast or series because literally I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, and it's just a delight and a, a hilarious privilege to be able to speak to people like yourself. But in theory, we're having a conversation around um, architecture optimization tools, which you have built or are building. Um, and we have built a, a lesser version of compared to what you're doing and sort of chit chat around that. Um, you were just saying, uh, Andre, that the weather's very nice. That's, yeah. a, that's, a, that's a piece of good news while the world is otherwise falling apart. <laughs> and I must say, it's not often I can say it about Gothenburg because it's famous for its shitty weather. So I'm enjoying, <laughs> I'm enjoying the best out of it. Y'all got to come to Texas in the middle of the summer. You'll love it. You'll be like, why? Well, I never want to leave this place. You're in, so you're in Dallas, right, Clifton? Dallas, Texas, yep. How many crises are currently ongoing in Cri your state? In Dallas, uh, is, 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 there, is there are there forest fires, the pandemic? I mean, just pick 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 a crisis and give us an update. Uh, I think the problems in Texas are, are more around, um, you know, there's there's certain groups of people that don't respect uh, wearing masks, and of course, in the U.S., nobody's going to mandate you have to wear a mask because uh, I want my freedom, or you know, pick your reason. Yeah, uh, but there, there's a lot of people that aren't taking pandemic seriously, um, and that's pretty concerning. I think, uh, especially when it's been politicized. Uh, and I'm not going to comment on pol U.S. politics, which I think mm. would be everybody will be happy uh, that that they're not listening to us talk well, about that. <laughs> I mean, I, am, I, I get the sense of that. What what we what 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 may happen is that you know once this becomes the equivalent of the Joe Rogan podcast, I'll have to move to Texas like he did. <laughs> <laughs> Did he move to Texas? Why did he move to Texas? He moved to Texas. For, well, he, he will not say, but I think it's partly political and most likely to be a tax issue. But anyway, on to mm. uh, away from a, a podcast with hundreds of millions of listeners to, to a podcast with scores of listeners, um, <laughs> <laughs> if we're lucky. <laughs> um, so so share what you, who you are and what you do so, so people have a sense of what we're even talking about. Yeah. Uh, my name is Clifton Harness. Uh, I'm a Texan. Uh, I, I started a, a company called TestFit. Uh, we, you know, in general, what we do is we design algorithms that then our users use to design buildings. Um, and so uh, the probably the best way to explain that is uh, we've embedded some of the sort of intelligence that you know, an architect would would use uh, when doing site plans uh, into a tool. Uh, and so practically speaking, we generate parking garages and stuff uh, that's sort of commodity architecture. Um, you won't see us do like a, a church generator or like a stadium generator or <laughs> a train station generator. I've, I've been asked, honestly, for all these things in the past. So I'm, uh, I'm just listing some crazy things that... <laughs> We've been requested, but all commodity, you know, apartments, housing is a really huge issue here in the United States. Yeah, um, it's also the only really functioning market in the United States right now. Uh, housing and light industrial, because of all the uh, e-commerce, which John and I have been geeking out about over the last couple of weeks. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, that's that's test fit, and that's me. Um, yeah, great, Andre. Yeah, 
I, I, I heard there's a big demand for church generators, so uh, the future might be bright for that. So, <laughs> um, Well, uh, my name is Andre uh, H.E. I'm from, from Sweden, and I'm an educated architect, and I've been involved in... I was introduced to parametric design around... Wait, 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 wait one second. So, so, so I thought you were, your saying was Aggie, so it's A-G. Yeah, I, I guess the English version for... I, I'm, I'm not actually... Um, I'm not sure what the English version for you, but Swedish. I think there's something sus- sus- suspicious going on here. So AGI, are you kind of quietly giving away the fact that you're really a computer? You are the future. You are the Skynet of architecture. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, I have to blame my Spanish father for that. So. Okay. Carry on. Sorry for interrupting. <laughs> no, no, no problem. Um, yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm an educated architect. I was introduced to parametric design very early on in my studies around 2010. And I was happy, very happy sort of to see it because I always loved design and I always loved like mathematics and logic. So I was happy to find a sort of like a common middle ground between uh, design and logics and so on. And uh, since then, I've been in various companies and positioned as a computational designer and also a regular architect. And um now pretty soon a couple of colleagues of mine are actually starting a journey of our own within the like the digital AEC industry so Whoa, what are you guys gonna do uh basically the same thing as everyone else <laughs> <laughs> now uh, but... ch- uh, church generators yeah exactly <laughs> yes premium premium value on the all the churches being built um, so just quickly, so my name is John Cherry. <clears throat> I started a company called Base2 about three and a half years ago. And um, what it does is what we call service integration. Um, I got my post-professional diploma in architecture here in Stockholm. I've taught at the architecture school and I've kind of practiced as a um, sort of specialist in sustainable architecture on various projects with larger architecture offices. And what we were, fo- what I've been focusing on within that is not just green design, but how do you change consumption patterns to drive um, more sustainable resource consumption at urban scale? And it turns out that there's a lot of opportunity to do that if you integrate service-oriented consumption. And so, the, what Base Two basically does is two things. We have a platform called Last Meter, which helps real estate owners and managers to integrate services on a kind of operational basis which has a limited spatial component. And we have a tool called Space Engine, which helps developers integrate services from first principles, i.e. design it into um, not just the business model, but also the spatial model. Um, And we're getting less bad every quarter, I would say. Um, And the need is is rising. So um, that's that's roughly what we're up to. We have a, a computational design piece in uh, in both of those. Basically, it's the space engine piece kind of applies slightly differently, but it's a bit different from 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 what you guys have been mostly focused on, or at least it overlaps with it, um, but uh, doesn't have the, quite the same emphasis. Um, we'll kind of come back to that stuff, but just so everyone has a sense of roughly what we're talking about, let's um, sort of comment on, on the various flavors of computational optimization. Um, because I think that there's quite a limited sense of, of what these things are and how they differentiate from each other. And they're not all the same thing, right? How would you, how would you, you to kind of differentiate yourself from other tools? Is there a way you categorize, you know, computational design? How do you go about it? Ooh, 
can of worms. Um, yeah, right. so let's open it a little bit and kind of gently extract <laughs> one or two worms and then close it firmly. Uh, I mean, I can provide my perspective and how it's and, and actually how my perspective has changed uh, over the course of of building TestFit. Um, you know, I started initially uh, thinking, okay, we're going to optimize buildings. We're gonna we're gonna design hundreds of thousands of buildings, and we're gonna we're gonna pick the best ones. Uh, that's kind of how it started in twenty, really late late twenty fifteen, when we we approached some some prospective clients about it. Uh, and then once we built the beta uh, in twenty sixteen, which was called Residential Engine, it just generated like rat buildings, which is like a big parking garage with uh, multifamily apartments around it. Um, once we had that built, uh, the, the guys, the, the feedback was, you know, I really don't want to see hundreds of options. I just want the thing to generate one option very quickly. Um, because what they want is something to start from, you know, they want to not start from a blank slate to start from something. Uh, and so, you know, we took that to heart test fit really only generates one or two great options from the get go. Um, and then the sort of, optimization happens, uh, with co-creation. So they'll generate, I don't know, one site plan and then they'll make slight adjustments to it. And that all those adjustments can be tracked and turned into multiple schemes. And then they can kind of take a data driven approach, uh, from there. Uh, it's quite a bit different, uh, I think than the approach that most people think that generative design companies take where we're just generating bajillion options and, you know, finding the best one. So there is a difference. Uh, and the difference is that our, our workflow actually includes the architect and the workflow. They're actually very involved. Uh, and you get better buildings as a result. Uh, so that's my soapbox. <laughs> Wait, so because because it's useful to kind of, because actually what's happening is we're inventing workflows and concepts kind of as we're going along, right? So what you've described right there is very interesting. I think most people really aren't aware, not just of the of the sort of different flavors of, of the technical aspect, but the kind of learning process that's going on in terms of the client workflow. How would you describe, is there, I mean, maybe it's just, it just but is there, an, would you put a name on this workflow, which is not, lots of options it's a limited number of options and then iteration or what did you call it co-creation is there a name you, you use for that kind of workflow differentiated from just lots of options yeah i call it co-creation uh and that, yeah. that's kind of what it is i mean we're we're not optimizing for the buildings we're optimizing for the user's workflow for speed um if that makes any sense so uh if you look at how long it takes to do X in in you know Revit, for example, we're trying to say, okay, we can do that a thousand times faster, um, and that's what we're trying to do. Uh, so, so would it would it be fair to to describe? Because I'm actually going to extract these words and use them elsewhere. But would it be fair <laughs> to say you're, you would differentiate what some people call optioneering from iterative co-creation? Oh. So this is why I like talking to John because he he really takes kind of a, a more critical uh, approach to the vocabulary people are using. Um, well, otherwise, I just don't understand anything, and I and my <laughs> brain is very defective in the sense that it just gets angry at the world if it does not understand. So, <laughs> framing <laughs> words. Uh, Andre, how would you how would you define optioneering versus co-creation? Oh well, uh, this is philosophical. Yeah, um, it is. <laughs> No, it's, it's practical in the sense that it's a very different experience for clients, right? If you have a, a tool, let's say like Refinery, 
in theory, it's a, you know it's a it's a poly it's a poly variable optimization machine where you can take infinite options out of it, right? But what you're talking about, Clifton, is something that's evolved into a much more practical tool, whatever you may call it. Is that yeah, right? the the thing I really like about Refinery is the like this uh, thing. So you, you could have a building that the like the workflow that I think would be really great if Refinery could get to it is sort of manual tools get the the building into kind of 85% of what the architect really wants. Yeah. Uh, and then ask it to generate, you know, 15 schemes that are, are very much similar to this party. Um, that I think would be a really great feature for architects. Uh, but that's not what you're doing. You wouldn't do, you wouldn't work on that basis. Probably not. Uh, I think, I think the, the refinery process doesn't, doesn't involve the designer enough. Uh, I think it's, okay. it's too hands off. It's, it's, yeah. you know, you have to actually be able to reach into some of these, these models and, and kind of fix it because the, the gen, the machine doesn't know what a good building is. You know, we do architects do, uh, um, machines don't really know. So uh, Andre, how do you, is there a, is there a kind of general framework that you use or at least how will you describe your own work or emphasis versus other, other approaches? Yeah. I, I kind of want to tie on to the last sentence that Clifton said, because um, I mean, optimization for me, first encounter I had with it, I thought it was super cool that you were able to like create this parametric model and you defined some goal that you were aiming towards and you were able to optimize towards it. And I mean, let, let's say you do it for, for, for daylight and you optimize for it and, and you get this optimal solution. Uh, quite quickly, you start to realize that okay, we, we maybe have the best option for the daylight scenario, but what about all the other parameters or aspects of our design? And uh, I mean, quite quickly, you start to realize that it's you're not able to capture everything that kind of matters in a design, in an uh, evaluative algorithm. So optimization for me has kind of like, the interest for it has decreased over the years. Uh, if, I see it more as kind of like design exploration that now in over the last years that generative design has become a thing, so to say, and everyone thinks it's cool that you can generate a thousand different options. The hard thing is really to navigate this space and sort of like cluster design options is very distinct areas and different combinations of them. Uh, and I see kind of like the big value is being able to uh, dumb down this whole design spectrum and pick out, okay, I'm looking at this current design right now, but what if I want to go towards a more denser option or an option that's better performing in daylight? How does that one look? And for me, that's an optimization process is in itself and it's kind of like the overall design spectrum because doing everything by algorithms uh, and optimizing everything first of all it's really hard to encode all the knowledge because you have to sort of like figure out am i just going to use my common sense and uh, intuition to evaluate the proposal or do i encode everything that i know what makes an option good or not into an algorithm and that, that's a really really hard thing yeah, architecture is often evaluated subjectively and software is only objective. So, you know, how can you optimize for a good building? 
<laughs> I always, I always kind of laugh at, I, you know, I don't laugh at people. I always laugh to myself when it's brought up. Okay. Test fit gives me the most optimal building right from the get go. Right. And I'm like, absolutely not. The whole design process as it stands with architects, mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, plumbing engineers, structural engineers, uh, general contractors through that whole process, you're actually optimizing the building without knowing it. You're optimizing for what the architecture desire or what the architect desires, what all the engineers desire, uh, what the developer desires. And the friction that's inherent in that process is actually the optimization process today. Um, and so in my mind, you know, test fits sort of like a constraint environment. And um, as we layer on all of this detail, as Andre said, like it takes a lot of time. Uh, we've been working on, you know, it always cracks me up. People say, oh, I can just rebuild this in a Dynamo script in five minutes. Okay, well, we've been working on the same, you know, if you want to call test with a script, working on the same script for almost five years. Um, and, you know, you can see how far we've gotten, right? We're, we've got stairs, we've got elevators, we've got firewalls, we've got units, we've got mixed use spaces, we've got parking, auto solving for parking ratios. Um, the list goes on, but we're not, in my mind, we're not even close to having enough stuff uh, modeled that we can throw it into an evolutionary solver and say, okay, computer, go find a, an optimized solution. Um, mm -hmm. So I also see, you know, like the, the three box generator in, in the new Revit uh, generative design stuff is really cool. But when you look at the bulk that it generates, you say, okay, the cores are going to be really messed up. It's not going to be a very efficient building because they're not modeling everything inside the building. They're just modeling the massing. Mm. Um, so generative design has got a really weird problem that the more, the more data and detail you add to the model, you actually know less about the building than you think you do. <laughs> so yeah. it's, 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 it's really weird. <laughs> So, so, so this is great to hear. I mean, this is actually really golden stuff. I mean, I don't know how many people will end up listening to this, but I, I, I would love it if it was a large section of the world's designers, computationalists, and and developers, because um, they actually need to know, really, because a lot of people are kind of just going astray, thinking, well, you know, there's a there's a there's a step out there which is everything's going to get computed. I've got to do X or buy X or think in you know a certain way. I mean. My approach to this, and you, you know, when we very first spoke a few years ago, Clifton, you might remember my kind of hectoring approach to you as I was kind of lecturing you on what will and won't work with algorithms. But I mean, I'm just focused on this problem in the first instance, which is that high order complexity is very hard to solve for using rule-based systems. And we've known this from every discipline that has investigated it. So if you take, for example, uh, physics or chemistry or language or music, we can throw computers at very well-defined rule-based systems. We don't generate good outcomes. And, and so that's a very interesting thing to study. And I've studied all those things in various levels of kind of detail and, and I have now been for the last, you know, eight or so, 10 years doing the same in architecture. And I've kind of had that intuition and gradually watched it play out. And even if that wasn't the case, there's another problem, which is that in architecture, we don't even have the basics, right? Unlike chemistry or language or music, we don't even know what the kind of foundations are, right? Is the foundation a line or a curve or a door or a room, right? We've got very limited kind of truly theoretical kind of structure to be to be using. And even when we would use it, we discover that rule-based systems are not are very bad at solving high order complexity and the spatial environment is arguably the highest order of complexity in the human experience. So those are the background problems that I've kind of encountered and what I've watched over the last few years 
is exactly as you're identifying Clifton, this this kind of evolution from like pure engineering, um, where you're throwing computation at what ends up being a vanishingly small problem technically, right? I say vanishingly small, it's not nothing, but it's a very small fraction as you would uh, as you said, Clifton, of the bigger issue of of design if you like right mm-hmm. and so it becomes a more you know workflow facilitation uh, exercise rather than kind of pure engineering um brute forcing of solutions and part of that is not just that the solutions aren't very good it's that is that creativity has to come in right w- one of the reasons why you know um sort of brute forcing high order problems is not not viable is because at some point you have to choose among what the computer will tell you are equivalent options right if you can compute a facade or a floor plan with actually in many in many cases infinitely different infinite numbers of different options but in terms of the optimization parameters they're all as good as each other you still have to stop and ask somebody which one do you prefer right uh, and so that's actually one of the problems of the high order optimization is that sometimes it's not just you don't get good answers is that you did too many good answers, too many good answers. And you have to either way stop and ask somebody what to do next. Um, and that's where creativity comes in. Either way, well, what are we going to do to move this thing forward? And so your, you know, your iterative co-creation is where the reason why I'm kind of capturing that phrase is I think it's so precise to how I think computation is actually evolving in the built um, sector. I think there's another piece just to kind of mention what you know we're working on, which is actually the value addition right there's there's one sort of you know so if you like you know the implications of computational design seem to be tools to help people design better right some bits will be automated away it will be engineering some bits will just be kind of co-creation tool sets to get you to you know iterate faster and you know give have more time for choice and creativity and so on and so forth but there's one piece of it the thing is not necessarily missing but i want to kind of bring to the surface which is what adds more value to a building and what we're focusing on are things that upfront add more value right so we've picked off a challenge where we we i think that it's the the as it were the forcing factor in the total system of built design that will lead to the biggest design changes and the and the most intensive valuation changes in the built environment at least residential commercial in the next 20 or 30 years which is services user services coming to buildings coming from buildings acting in buildings and so what we can say is if you make a little small simple change here's the value implication of it if you add a parking space large enough for a bulk delivery of groceries then and you have a relationship with the grocery provider technically it's almost trivial but in value terms in logistical efficiency terms, it's significant and can be computed. And so we're kind of leveraging small changes into large value rather than often what happens with computation, which is massive computation for almost no difference in value, right? Um, yeah, I, yeah. Uh, you know, John, I, I spent maybe 30 minutes after we had our call, like thinking, okay, you know, if you had to optimize a building for, for logistics, like you could end up changing the entire building. Like you could move (laughs) so many things around to just optimize for that one thing. Uh, but, uh, I think to our point in this call is like, it's multivariable optimization. Like that's what we're doing without really knowing it in architecture. Yeah. You know, do you want to optimize for that, or do you want to make sure that all of your units have a good view of, you know, a yeah, courtyard exactly. or, or whatever? Exactly. So, so you've got to make that that trade off. Um, but I do think that uh, having uh, qualitative me- or quantitative metrics that that describe, you know, 
how far away all of your, your units are from a, from a mailbox or, you know, something that would, that would make the, the poor guys that have to deliver boxes from Amazon all day, make their lives a little bit easier. You know, what does that look like? And that is an easy value add because it's just like, okay, we just need to reconfigure, you know, 3% of the building, right. From the, not even from the get go, I'm sure you can, can get it done in, in SDs and still be really impactful. Yeah, I mean, so so yeah, we'll come back to all that stuff later. We just kind of yeah, we've got some kind of flavor out there in terms of the of our respective comments on the on on the state of on on the sort of on the sort of technical differentiation. What what do you think is the state of the industry? Are are you uh, leading it? Do you want to lead it? Are you underdogs? What's going on? I mean, we can't we can't get out of this conversation without talking about Autodesk. But what what is going out, what's going on out there? Do you think in both both of you infected topic? Uh, <laughs> I'll let Andre go. I'll Andre lead. <laughs> Somehow, I feel that the industry is that if we picture that everyone is placed on a deserted island. And everyone has to kind of like escape from the island and build their own raft. This is this is a not a promising. Where is the sentence going? <laughs> no, no I, I mean because there's. I know that Andrew Andrew Human has mentioned this a lot, and it's the whole uh, like initiative between Hypar and sort of like in the current situation, the moment everyone is doing their own thing. Many people are doing the same thing, and there's. Uh, there's both a, like a beauty in it and there's also uh, a lot of wasted time that everyone is kind of reinventing the wheel um what i i mean the biggest thing that parametrics brought in the into the industry for me is transparency in the whole design process is that you're able to measure like what we're talking about performance and metrics and you open up this kind of like transparent communication level between the designer and the client like you can actually start talking about what kind of window connectivity you do have in this plan how uh, how is the like movement patterns along the plan so that that's really the value that it brings for me but the current state is that i feel that there's no since it's rather still rather new there's no standardized way of doing stuff and as I said, that's both a beauty and maybe a bad thing on its own. And that maybe ties onto the whole discussion of open source or not. And I think the industry has a lot to benefit being more um, that people share stuff more easily and more openly. At the same time, as while well, I think it's still in, at the very early stage, if I have access to open source code, that means that I accept the the approach to solving a problem that the designer of the open source code made. So in some cases, it might be better to actually not get access to already solved uh, stuff and do it in your own interpretation. Um, but right, explain what you mean by that. Just build it yourself and ignore everybody else, or what do you mean? I mean, no, someone solves, uh, someone builds uh, an algorithm on how to puzzle and place apartments in a building. Um, if I have access to the open source code, that means that I will never be able to interpret the problem and build it in my own way. So, I mean, I just accept the solution or the path to the solution that someone else started. And 
uh, I mean, again, since it's still a lot of the problems in the industry is not well defined, there's no like hard coded metrics or stuff to aim for behind it. I think it's quite good that you people are reinventing the wheel all the time. So you eventually will end up in some common ground between the different solutions. Uh, okay, well, there's loads of questions there, but just quickly, well, not quickly, you say, say as much as you like, but, but Clifton, how do you approach the, the state of the industry, as it were? Where do you see yourself within it as well? Ooh, okay, um, well, um, I when we started TestFit, I was uh, 25, 26 years old, young guy, uh, didn't really know what I was doing, right? Um, and... I think the industry has so little innovation that without us really trying at TestFit, all we had to do was build a good software package. Um, and, you know, we got our first like 15 customers in the first, I don't know, three months just from a really crappy script that was, you know, built into uh, a desktop app that provided very good value for people, which was, we're just going to generate a feasibility study for you. Um, and so you, you sort of start the startup and you, you go make a sale and you're like, okay, well, how, how the hell did I make money just now? And you, you go talk to them. You say, okay, well, what, what value did, am I bringing to you? And, you know, and they, they explain a little bit more that 90% of their, their site plans never get built. And then you're, then you're, you're asking yourself, okay, well, is this true in every company? And then you kind of go around and ask, and, and then you realize that like every single company out there is doing an inordinate amount of feasibility in the hopes that they'll win work. Um, so uh, the state of the industry, at least in feasibility, which is where I live is it's pretty bad. Uh, nobody's, well, I, I can, I'm going to speak for the United States. Uh, you know, I don't know how things are over there in Sweden or, or in the Nordics, uh, but, or Scandinavia, uh, but the, uh, over here, uh, architects don't get paid for feasibility. Developers don't want to pay for it. Um, there's no incentive to really from the get go, create a great building because, you know, incentives aren't really aligned. Uh, so we're trying to disrupt that and we have, and I think it's really shocking that two, two guys in Texas of all places, Dallas, Texas, not even Austin. We're not even in the Silicon Hills, you know, like we're, we're in Dallas and we came up with this and, you know, the guys in the big firm round table at the AIA are talking about us. Uh, and this was before we even raised money. So I, yeah, I mean, it, there's, there's an embarrassing lack of innovation in our industry. And I think architects, they depend way too much on the software companies to provide that innovation for them. Uh, and, you know, I had someone on, uh, on LinkedIn ask me, you know, how is Tesla innovating housing? I'm like, we don't innovate housing. We let our, our customers actually innovate housing. All we do is support their, their efforts. Um, and one example of that is like we shipped a modular tool earlier, earlier this year, because half of our customers are trying to at least get into modular, figure it out. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't know if that answers the question, John, uh, I, I'm not, um, no, it doesn't, it doesn't it answer all, the question. It, no, not at all. It answers another question, <laughs> okay. which is what is your approach? What is your approach to the market? But it doesn't really answer what else is out there. I mean, you, you kind of allude to what is out, but just but tell me what what your tell me what your market what is your what is the market what market are you joining? 
like to talk about specific companies or solutions or things people do because you you're kind of alluding to it in 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 terms of feasibility but are there other tools like it uh, are, oh yeah um, for sure there's lots of feasibility tools out there um, right. you know and there's there's the the 800 pound gorilla over there in uh in norway you know they raised 25 million dollars no you have you have uh, to say who it is because most people don't know oh space maker yeah Space yeah, Maker, Space yeah. Maker. Uh, so they raise a lot of money, and from what I can see, they've built a built something very good for uh, for their market. Uh, but you start to see some cultural differences, you know, in the way that software companies approach their markets. Um, in the United States, uh, you know, the simulation of of light and sound and uh, a lot of the stuff that that Space Maker has spent time on, you know we didn't have to because our customers here don't care about that kind of stuff. Mm. Why not? Cause uh, it doesn't matter as long as it's to code or what? Uh, Cause it's the United States. Uh, I mean, yeah. you, you just, you know, you don't have to guarantee that every unit gets light. There's, there's just stuff that is different here than over there. Hmm. This is one uh, of the problems that makes the industry so scattered so to say because you have very unique regulations for each country for each uh, area and that's why it's hard so hard if we're comparing to the it industry or web development to make a unified like standard system that's applicable to all over the world which maybe might actually would be bad in the end because then buildings would look the same all over the world which (laughs) would be horrifying i totally agree and also, like like uh, Celebrity Model Checker is absolutely beautiful software, but if I wanted to use it for a multifamily building in Texas, you know, I wouldn't be able to use it, right? Mm. Uh, so I mean, let's just—I mean, we can all be very polite if you like, but what about Autodesk? Uh, I mean, because the argument is right. What one argument is, um, which is where this kind of conference, this this question will kind of gradually evolve into is. Is it worth building separate products, or should everybody just connect to somebody else's tools? Right? Is it not worthwhile that somebody has a stack, somebody else has an optimization algorithm? I mean, where are you at with the integration piece? Let's start with Autodesk, but let's talk about other things as well. What is the situation with Autodesk as far as you're concerned? Uh, they're not going to be unseated anytime soon. I mean, you, you the the way that they've built their environment. Uh, is similar to like the way that like HubSpot, like HubSpot's a platform, you know, like you, you start off by using their CRM and then, and then, okay, I want to do the marketing bit because it gives me some email tools that I can, you know, do my marketing. And then there's some sales tools because, you know, so, so you, you sort of, uh, you see the audit, I see, I see HubSpot, which is a CRM, you know, publicly traded company. They're, they're trying to entangle our company into their platform so that we never leave. Um, and so Autodesk, that's all they're doing. Uh, I, you know, it's a good business move. Um, it's, uh, keeping the architects, uh, in their ecosystem, uh, in perpetuity. Uh, and I, you know, I don't, I don't see a way out unless, uh, firms decide that they're going to retrain their entire staff on like, I don't know, Archicad or, you know, another, another vertical. Um, but this does show the, the problem with monopolies um and uh for all intents and purposes you know autodesk probably does have a monopoly over the united states um and so you know do do you try to bust them up like no because they're only a 40 billion dollar company it's not really 
um, feasible. Uh, they're not that big compared to the, some of the other companies that should be broken up. But really, it comes down to architects. You need, If you want to get out of the Autodesk environment, you have to make the investment to get out of the Autodesk environment. And sending a letter that uh, basically states, uh, you guys haven't innovated and we're mad. No, like, no, that's no, not no. We're, we're not going to talk about that. That is too pathetic. Put your money where your mouth is. Leave the environment, you know, like go, go yeah. give, uh, go give McNeil a ton of business, you know, like, yeah. uh, so competition is, is the only way to do it in my mind. Um, just to, and, just to clarify for anybody that's not is as pathetic and boring as we are, is that is that is that a group of very fancy architecture offices wrote a <laughs> very odd letter to to the head of Autodesk saying your product's too expensive and isn't innovating fast enough. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think it I think it spun up something kind of interesting, which was the Inside the Factory series, where they're really trying to get the the user base of revit in touch with the people that are building it in a in a in a better way okay uh and that's not bad that's great that's good progress but really what architects what they what they should want is like 15 more things just like that you know i Mm -hmm. I don't mean i can only speak for my company and our you know 160 firms that use test fit um you know that's my market uh i I don't know. Uh, the future of Revit is an API, I think. Uh, the future of Revit is in a monolithic uh, application. It's uh, all the functions are going to be up in the cloud. And so if you want to generate some sheets, you just send, hey, make some sheets. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think they're I think they're pretty smart. They know what they're doing with Revit moving forward. And it's dividing it up into the useful parts that it is, turning it into an API that will then serve the next uh, software application uh, that, that architects or, you know, MEP people that we're all going to be using. And that, that next software application actually won't be a software application. It'll just be APIs talking to each other. Uh, Andre, so is that, is that your conclusion as well? Is that, is that the kind of gradual decomposition of this monolith into API endpoints and just kind of interconnectivity and whatnot? Is that, is that the inevitable future of Autodesk or how do you feel about them and what you're doing in relation to them? Yeah, I mean, a big part of the problem for the industry in general is is the is the lack of communication between the softwares and so on. The whole, in fact, the discussion with Autodesk is kind of, I mean, it's both amusing and sad because you you have different options and it's like you're in this bad relationship and everything you do is just complaining without looking into other options and you have. I mean, take for example Blender, which is a free software, and now there's a big initiative for. Uh, open source BIM project for Blender. So I, I believe there's will be good competing options for this. Yeah, if you're listening and you haven't looked at Blender BIM, you should check it out. Yeah. I mean, so so I think that there are analogies uh, with with Autodesk and in other sort of parts of the technology sector, which are actually very instructive. And so um, if you look, for example, at what's happening with Adobe, right? So Adobe is very parallel historically to um, Autodesk in the sense that they've captured most of a professional community historically, right, with their software licenses. Uh, and so if you were a photo a photographer or a photo editor or you're a graphic designer, I mean, historically, you know, for a good, you know, 20 years, you would have had an a, a Adobe Creator Suite 
monolithic license, right? And they gradually shift to, you know, sort of monthly licensing and so forth. But it's not far off the same principle, which is the kind of capturing, um, a, you know, market segment with their stuff. Um, but what's happened is that um, for whatever reason, right, uh, there, uh, there are breakout products that are now just massively carving into their core user base, right? So we take graphic design, you know, uh, Figma is leading and Sketch is, you know, is a bit behind, but you know, we proved that was reversed and it may reverse again. And gradually all that's converging onto web-based tools in general, right? So there's you know, less and less differentiation between, um, you know, wireframing tools and, you know, web development tools like Webflow and, and, and you know, these, these uh, vector graphics tools and so forth. And, and if you look at what Adobe is doing, they're just left behind. I mean, technically their products aren't as good, but also no one fucking cares. Everyone's just left the building. Right. I, I don't know anybody that does any graphic design that is interested in staying up to date with what's happening with Adobe Creative Cloud, which is their, you know, um, sort of subscription based pseudo cloud based version of the of the monolithic tool set. And I do think that's going to happen with with the Autodesk product suite. And the reason for that is that they have the company is spending its time protecting the license base or the install base, right? Um, and exactly as you describe, whether it's Blender BIM or it's Unity or it's TestFit or it's whatever, you know, unnamed magic shit that Andre is about to invent. Um, I think that there is this kind of, um, uh, there is this kind of um, uh, sort of groundswell of alternatives that are absolutely ready to you know, cross configure and you know bounce between each other and just build that market from first principles, and while it might look like a small wedge, right? Because as you say, Clifton, it's a massive monolith, and you know they're not about to be unseated. It's it's a cumulative effect, right? So we take you know, you know from another industry that's more advanced but on the same track. If you look at what's happening with Stripe, right? Stripe was a tiny zero nullity in fintech with just this pathetically small little kind of payments integrator for their friends' websites. And now, basically, they're, they're, they're having to you know, justify why they aren't offering banking services. That's the scale, <laughs> of, the scale at which they, you know, they, they, they've arrived on the scene. Banks uh, I basically love Stripe, get, man. Stripe's great. <laughs> but, but that's the point, right, is that, is that these things kind of iterate and iterate and iterate. And once, you know, the, the kind of the smallness and the, the kind of, you know, the unfairness of it, becomes okay well we're all just used to that now and the innovation community kind of stabilizes around that premise and there is some money in there from larger players like unity for example i think unity is going to be a big backbone to all sorts of alternatives when they realize that they haven't got any architectural tools their approach which is mesh-based hmm. render environments is not the same as architectural they will basically be, i think become the competitor to autodesk in terms of the backbone and i think that's you know that's the play out is that autodesk is 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 going to carry on being great until until one is not right, and it will either do a Microsoft type pivot or something else. I don't know. It's, um, it's the same story whichever sector you're in, because every every company has its time and place, sort of. Because we've seen gradually, like if you take Kodak or other examples, which were flourishing in their time, but then all of a sudden the technology changes or something like drastically changes, and it's you built up this massive container yeah. ship that is really hard to like reinvent from the ground up. Yeah. So uh, I feel, but I think as we're talking about like the state of the industry, even if <laughs> we're now mentioning Autodesk, even if they like drastically change their software, I don't think that's the that's what the industry need. I, uh, 
I don't know if you're familiar with the McKinsey report that comes out every year. I think the biggest challenge is that they're also mentioning this in the report. The biggest challenge is for the offices, the architecture offices, to have a mind shift that you're changing your, <laughs> your, your view on projects so that you don't talk about projects, but you're talking about products, that you start building up this infrastructure, this ecosystem within your firm that you're offering products and not unique projects all the time, because that's the big problem that I feel that everyone is standing on a treadmill, just walking and spending energy, but they're not really like, they're not going forward in terms of building up a reusable platform with uh, reusable models or floor plans or whatever to fit in your building. And that will be the big value for architecture firms, not that some software developer offers this amazing new generative platform within their software. I, I, I'm, I'm super excited when I see architects build their own software. Um, and you know, it, it shows like every time I see a firm that builds their own software, I'm like, this is great. This is really kind of what I think the future of architecture really is, uh, is when you're building your own software. Uh, the problem with it though, is they're building it in a way that it might be on top of like forge. So, okay. You, you just spent a hundred thousand dollars in, de- in development costs and now you're locked into the Autodesk ecosystem. So you have to pay Autodesk, uh, to use the software that you just wrote, you know, okay. That's a problem. Um, because you, you can't get out of the, you, you've have all the sunk costs. You can't get out of their ecosystem. Um, you know, another thing I'll say is software companies, you, people pay us to maintain and build the software. Um, and, in within architecture firms, I don't think they understand how expensive it actually is to maintain good software. It takes, uh, you know, new updates introduce a lot more bugs. There's a lot more things that that happen when you expand it, uh, and you're introducing more complexity, and then you've got to manage the additional complexity. Uh, so they've got a hard path forward if they want to build their own software. But once you build it, you now have you know a proprietary tool within architecture. I mean, that's insane. Nobody has proprietary tools within architecture. But so, but so are you saying, okay, but just to unpack that very slightly, are you saying that having your own stack is a good thing because once you've got it, you've got it. I'm saying having your own stack differentiates you from the other architects out there. Like if I was a developer today and I was interviewing architects, uh, I would probably ask what kind of software are you guys building on your, on your end? Uh, okay, and it, the vast majority of them are going to say, we're not building anything. But is, doesn't that kind of go against what you were saying about everything basically connecting to everything else via API? Is that not the, I mean, how do you balance those two things? Because, because pre- presumably like the point of having your own software is it isn't just in the cloud. It's a thing that you have to get you to produce. Yeah. Okay. So here, here's how I would do it. If I was in a transition TestFit Inc. into an architecture firm, I would still sell TestFit software and I would mm-hmm. use my software internally. You know, mm-hmm. you, if you want to, if you want to have great software, you should be able to sell it to other architects and other real estate developers to use mm-hmm. uh, while you're also using it internally. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's gotta be, the, that's gotta be the benchmark for good software that other people can pay us to use it. Okay, but so but so so to kind of stabilize these these various points, who should connect to whom? 
right? So let's take, for example, Speckle and Hypar. What, so let, let's say, for example, that a client who was relatively, you know, kind of versed in these kinds of things said, hey, look, guys, we're using Hypar or, I mean, Speckle's a bit different, but let's say they were using Hypar as a kind of, you know, uh, kind of testing environment, right? Where we can, we, we can run in Hypar's language, you know, functions uh, to test, you know, to test different configurations. Um, uh, what is your take on that? Would you say to that to that development that developer? Well, you know, in 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 case of these optimizations, you're going to have to directly use test fit, or we're going to converge onto hypar, or we're not going to converge on hypar, but we'll kind of bleed some algorithms into one of their functions. I mean, you know, when you say you it's good to have your own software, if a developer says I just want a platform tool that I can rely on and everything connects to it, what is it, what would be your answer to that, Clifton? But also Andre, both of you. Uh, I think too many people are trying to boil the ocean. Uh, you know, pick tools that are useful for the job that you're trying to do. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I you know, I if you're if you're doing feasibility, uh, use TestFit. If you're doing construction documents, you probably shouldn't use TestFit. <laughs> right? Like yeah. you've got to be very specific with what what software you're using, uh, and you know, I, I think uh, Hypar is a little bit early to the party. Um, you know, I think 10 years ago they had this idea even, and they still have this idea. Uh, but the ecosystem for APIs in AEC does not exist. Um, mm. And, you know, I even tweeted the other day, all right, who has APIs they can sell me? Uh, and the only response to the tweet was like Hypar saying, oh, we're a platform for that. You know, so, you know, who has APIs that are, are worthwhile to integrate? in AEC today, very few people. Uh, and I would say, um, you know, CoveTool has an API. Okay. So, you know, test it, we will integrate with CoveTool, uh, hopefully before the end of the year, but I don't know if we'll get to it. Um, uh, Thornton Tomasetti, they've got all of these very useful APIs, uh, and we're integrating with them right now for structural engineering. Uh, so, you know, Pick the API that is specifically good for the problem that you're trying to solve. And the problem that we're trying to solve in feasibility is that 40% of our cost is in structure. And Thornton Tomasetti has APIs that can tell us and describe the structure that we need. I mean, you send them a whole model, you send them an analytical model and they spit back all the column sizing in, in you know, half a second. Uh, and that's a coordination meeting in the cloud that's done okay. by algorithms, but, but, right? But to clarify, because I'll, I'll ask you, I'll ask you a version of this question in a, in, a, in, a, in a second, Andre. But basically, what you're saying in practice is that although you believe the API kind of cross configuration is the future, it's not the present. It's in not practice, the present. People, no, it's people not the should present. just choose the tool that they want to develop a project with at whatever stage, right? So let's, it's probably going to be something Autodesk or ArchiCAD or some McNeil, there's only one real McNeil product that I know, and they're going to call API configurators and tools if they can, otherwise they won't. That's it. That's the story. Is that? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I think I'd like to see a world where, yeah, you know, I, I like to use Finch as a, as a, as an example, because he's got a really cool unit plan generator that's that seems pretty scalable, right? Um, and if my customers wanted to get unit plans within TestFit uh, generated, okay, well, let me call up uh, Finch and let's build an API integration. And he gets paid, I don't know, a dollar every time we ping his API uh, for, uh, for unit plans. Uh, and so, you know, you got to build the ecosystem as you go. Uh, you can't build it first and then say, okay, everybody come, uh, because 
they're not going to understand what what's going on. Yeah. Okay. But to be to be to be fair, what you're saying in coded terms is you are building the platform, right? If what you're saying is okay, I will go to a third party API and implement, integrate them into my platform, which is a tool set that can kind of congregate these tools around your tools. Right. I mean, I'm just I'm just kind of being objective about it. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying, isn't that is that not what you're implying? I think if we you're not like we're a product now until we're not a product. Right. You're yeah. you know, as you grow and grow and grow and grow and integrate, integrate, integrate and build, you know, like we, we just doubled our, our TAM the other day because we released a low density configurator. Um, you know, eventually we'll be a platform for commodity buildings. But right now we're housing. Uh yeah. And so, you know, the, the, the journey of innovation is customer feedback, customer feedback, customer feedback, build stuff to address your customer feedback. Uh, and eventually you'll end up building, you know, a good tool. And that's all, you know, it's all the product market fit stuff uh, that we've been pursuing um, that we have with real estate developers, but it's tenuous with architects. You know, they want a lot more manual tools. Um, and so you'll see, you know, updates where we're providing more manual tools where, where are you at andre with the question of like you know uh, platforms maybe other than autodesk i mean do you do you feel they're ready for use are you building your own platform how do you feel about in other words should people connect to you or should you connect to other things or neither uh, i really believe in the i mean for a fact, no single software is ever going to solve the entire process from from start to like construction so there, there's a huge need of softwares being able to communicate with each other. Uh, today, maybe there's a limited number of APIs between softwares. Uh, and the thing is that, I mean, the average architect within bigger firms, smaller firms, is not the most advanced coder. And being able to obtain that knowledge of learning coding, learning to like access APIs, to know how to extract walls from Revit to bring them into this other software and so on, that, that's quite a long journey. So yeah. if, if the software developers can have, just exactly as Clifton is saying that, okay, my software is really good at solving this part. And we have this other software, Finch, which has perfect solutions for unit plans. I don't need to reinvent it. We just connect them together and, and right. solve the situation. So it's a so it's a pragmatic approach, right? I, I call this like the ecosystem approach to platforms that so everyone connects to whatever else they need insofar as they need to, right? Yep. And, and the client can decide where they want to start on this journey, right? Yeah, exactly. So um, yeah. If you can offer like easy user interfaces in order to communicate between or send data or or, or e even kind of like hide the, the logic behind it for the end user, that's... That's maybe the best solution until the average architect really picks up a rather high coding level. Mm. It's it's almost certainly too late to, to to clarify this in the conversation, but just in case anybody who's listening that isn't up on this kind of thing, API stands for application programming interface, and it's basically the way computers talk to each other, send each other data, and get data from each other. Um, uh, so when you write in a URL, it's really an API interface that humans are setting up for the computer, but most APIs are hidden from users. And it's basically the same principles. You have an address and you send data or get data. And it's basically connecting computers and information types. It's not very complicated uh, uh, analytically, but technically it gets very complicated because everything needs to be configured in different ways, right? Yeah. Um, 
but so uh so you were touching on something quite interesting there um which i have some thoughts about um uh um clifton when you say you know connect to Jesper, that's um finch 3d's um uh api and paying a dollar per um per pop explain what you mean by that because i'm going to unpack that a bit in, in business terms is it a good business let me well let me jump a step ahead is there a business in exposing an api where you get one dollar for use or whatever uh yeah i think so uh i don't know if it's like uh today you probably wouldn't be able to live off of it but it'd be you know maybe five ten percent of your your firm's revenue could could potentially come from that um you know there's thousands you know i think ian and anthony at high par their, their point and it's totally true there's literally hundreds of thousands of scripts written everywhere um, you know, why don't these firms expose them to the outside world and earn money on them? I, for the life of me, I don't understand why they don't do it. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, what's your view on the, on the monetization of APIs, uh, and as it were cloud-based, you know, tools, you can get a piece of functionality. What's your view on that, Andre? Well, I, I mean, I mean the whole, the whole. First of all, the whole question of sharing definitions or scripts. Um, it, it, it's. I understand the whole point that uh, Office spent money and time invested into developing that stuff, and why should they give it away for free? Um, that that's a hard thing. But tying back to like API, of course, I see a bigger need of it in the future, and I believe that's the only solution and if we draw the parallel to the IT environment and the web development go back I don't know 10-15 years if you would make a website it would look differently in uh, uh, Firefox or Internet Explorer and you r literally had to build like four or five different versions of your website and that's the current state that we're in today so if you build a standardized way of communicating between the APIs and the geometry in this case get interpreted and rebuilt in the same way in every single software um, then you have a huge uh, initiative to make money on on being uh, offering api solutions and being very open and i i mean tying that back to maybe the the revit discussion that must be a better way of uh, ensuring your survival within the industry in the longer term offering like openness with your software well so yeah interesting i mean i i have got a quite a, a sort of structured view on this i think that the that the architecture debate is significantly behind the rest of the technology sector in this regard and i don't think that that monetizing apis is the correct way to go if you so oliver green put a question on twitter to to this conversation around you know what would you say is the parallel between the state of aec software integration if you kind of compare it to web development tools and what he means by that is kind of front end frameworks in particular where there's a massive acceleration in the last few years of javascript language and frameworks and frameworks for frameworks and tools to integrate frameworks and modules for making websites do cool shit basically and the the underlying aspect of that question is firstly standards and i think one of the reasons we're not going to go very fast down this road is that we don't have very good standards, but that's gradually emerging. But the other thing which you didn't make explicit is um, uh, is um, the fact that everything's fucking free, right? <laughs> and, I, and, I, and unfortunately, I think that that is going to be the, the nature 
of one of the big acceleration spurts in the AEC space is that all the tools are going to become free, right? And so, and so one of the reasons why I think people you know, sort of naturally want to be the platform is because the, you are then in theory insulated from uh, commodification of, of tool sets, right? Um, and, 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 and I just think that that's part of the business thinking process, which is where are we? in this kind of grinding down to zero, literally zero price for incredibly highly specified things. So for example, if you want to build a website right now and you're going to big billions of dollars on the website, most of what you will use is free technology. I mean, this is the most amazing thing, right? It's literally all free technology. Um, I mean, there's one or two features that you may pay licenses for, but you aren't paying anyone a big license for the right to build a very, very powerful website. Actually, it's the opposite. The more powerful it is, the less you pay for very well-tested um, uh, libraries and, and 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 tools and frameworks and so forth. And so I do think that's an issue that's going to come into, into AEC. And I think it leads to the question of how does anyone make money? And I think it really reinforces the question, I can't remember which one of you made it about, I think about what is the business model for architecture? And if you include within that tool making for architecture, I think it's a big problem. Right, you know, there's, there's, a, there's in, in the tech sector, there's a, there's a phrase which is, you know, everything's just a cycle of bundling and unbundling. Right, so you just need to know where you are, and I think that's one dimension of analysis that's very useful. Another dimension of analysis, right, which I've invented, is is that, that we're always in a pendulum swing, particularly as individual companies, between um, what I call commodification and complexification. Either of them will kill you, right? So if you build a product and anyone can copy you you're on a pathway to commodification and it would be very hard to cling on to your margin or your market because people are just going to create free shit that's just as good as what you're doing. The other alternative is to make things more complex, but then that will kill you because you can't make it work at scale. Um, it's just too, it'll, 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 you know, it'll crush you. And that middle ground somewhere between commodification and complexification, I think is the challenge for, for, for valuable technology, my approach to that, and I and I kind of commend it to everybody, um, but you know everyone's got to work it out for themselves. Is find another way of making money, right? Because what we're doing with our tool set is basically, you know, we're not actually making it available free, but we're assuming it will be free, and we can make it free at any point we want to. We'd rather it was free to accelerate its usage. If people want to give us money for it right now, particularly for services we add to it, that's fine. But we assume that all of the technical knowledge that we're going to put into this thing is going to be free. And, and it, we're happy for that because what it then accelerates is our other way of making money, which is building out a relationship with service providers that you know deliver food or clean your apartment or whatever it may be or take your waste away or let rent you power drills or whatever and so after all that analysis my punchline is i do think there's going to be a significant problem with attempting to monetize apis and actually monetize almost anything computational because so many people will be doing it you guys will now tell me i'm totally wrong please do <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i, I don't I don't know if I like the uh, predict the future kind of thing. You know, all I all I can say is, um, you could rebuild TestFit with uh, open source scripts. Uh, you could do it. Uh, you you could scrape Dynamo functions that people have posted. You know, you you could do it, right? Uh, but. Uh, I don't think it it solves this the core issue with with the scripting environments today, and that's that the UX is terrible. Like you can't yeah. convince any architect on the planet to want to spend. Well, maybe Andre, but you can't you can't uh, convince a lot of people to want to spend their their careers in visual scripting. 
Um, and, uh, it's, you know, (laughs) I I go to college and I get a degree in architecture to draw buildings and, uh, you know, my job today now is, is, is moving data around nodes. You know, I don't really think that's respectful of, of the industry of architecture. Um, and I think it demands a better software tool. Um, and test bits, you know, it's not for all the guys that do computational design. It's for, uh, the, it's for like your, your principal that's trying to win work. You know, it's not, you know, I, I get a lot of, I like on demos, people are like, oh, I got to agree my, bring my computational design guy yeah. because he'll be able to understand it. And I'm like, oh, interesting. I'm like, no, you'll be able to understand it <laughs> on your own. You don't, you don't need to, you know, this doesn't require dynamo or grasshopper. It doesn't require learning a completely new skill set. It requires you to click buttons and look at buildings and make decisions. Um, and the more that we give people tools they can actually make decisions with, the faster and more innovative our, our industry will be. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, unlike web development, there really isn't that many open source libraries that you can tap into in AEC. Yeah. Uh, but what I will say, uh, you know, the closest thing that I can see is Hypar. They've got this library that, you know, if we were going to do, it's called AEC Toolkit. Look at it. It's great. Uh, if we were going to do BIM, we would go with that route um, to, to fully model all the details in the building, right? When you say if you're going to do BIM, what, because most people would think you are doing BIM. In what way are you not doing BIM? Uh, we're macro BIM. We're like building level data. We know, you know how much area is everywhere. We know yeah. what's in the building, but we don't have a big database with all of the metadata that, say, like right. a, a Revit file would have. Yeah. Okay, I mean that's that's interesting. I mean, I, I think you're you you're probably on the money in the sense that the the theoretical uh, commodification of the AEC kind of knowledge space, um, if you put it in parallel to you know web development, it would it assumes the fifty years of computation that's gone before it in the area of web and tech that hasn't happened in AEC. Right, there hasn't been a big bang. It hasn't been an evolutionary moment where we suddenly have standards and we have open libraries and we have you know a culture of interoperability. It just, just doesn't exist yet. Right, all these things we're talking about are like you know, you know, sort of baby steps towards it. And what may be the case is that, um, and as you speak, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm starting to think it is most likely to be the case that is that these kind of these new fiefdoms of various sizes, which you know, in theory, connect to each other, evolve, and underneath that, then standards evolve, and you know, you know, sort of you know, libraries and modules evolve that then gradually erodes them. But we, you know, we put from what from sort of you know, reflecting what you're saying, Clifton, this is most likely that actually people are going to build you know d- you know d- discrete tools that are their own platforms in a way that you know probably are more connective to other tool sets and apis and things than, than you know previous generations but they still are configured stacks of software and then you know these evolutionary cycles of commodification will happen underneath that i guess yeah i you know one thing another thing uh, texas is different from sweden right these are two very different places uh so, you know, when I went to Europe and I went to Europe last year, I spent three weeks there. Uh, you know, I was in London. I had about 45 meetings with firms all across Europe. Uh, Paris, uh, you know, I did a little presentation with Data Shapes. Um, and uh, I came away after visiting Europe thinking that I, I really don't think Tesfit could provide a whole lot of value in Europe because the building types there are very different. Like you have a central core and then you have all these units off of that central core. It's sort of like point block, uh, and it, it's just with different codes. Uh, and so the software that we build 
for housing in Texas, uh, where, you know, I don't know, 25% of our user base is in Texas. The stuff that we build for here is going to be very different than the stuff that's built uh, over there, right? Uh, so it depends also like what kind of building codes you have to comply to uh, on a per country basis, which is super annoying to build scalable software to solve for that. Uh, you know, currently TestFit really is an IBC tool while the international building code is used in what countries? Like the United States is it? Which says something about how arrogant the United States is. <laughs> but but clarify clarify for a second, and then Andre ask you the same question. What, what um, how easy is it? I mean, you you seem to imply that it's not easy for you to reconfigure your tool for for different housing typologies. Why is that? Surely it's relatively easy to reconfigure. Compliance. I mean, you, like I I I have to literally get my guys to get into the euro codes and understand specifically what's going on. Right. So, so when you're doing feasibility, you're basically making your, your all of your outputs in feasibility terms are code feasible. That's the point. That's what makes them feasible, right? Yeah. Generate compliant building. Well, like, what's the point okay. of generating a building that you can't? That's illegal. Well, yeah, but you was you were also saying that you know there's less worries in the U.S. about lighting and whatnot. You know, I mean. So oh yeah, 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 yeah. Which which is why generating compliant buildings in Sweden is going to be a tough thing to do, right? Right. Do you agree with that, Andre? That that that, that using configurators in the in the Swedish or the Nordic um, housing market is harder because there's just more code to make your designs compliant. Um, if it's harder, I don't know. It's just like you say, more stuff to regulate towards. But yeah. I mean, in order for a tool within architecture and the building cons uh, industry to become flexible. Of course, it's hard because, I mean, somehow I see the current state of, of these uh, volume generation tools. They're kind of fragile. And with fragile, I mean that they, in some cases, might not live up to your expectations because they're aimed or uh, tailor-made towards some regulations or some, uh, I don't know, unique building style or so on. But uh, I, I mean... I think you should uh, see these tools. Firstly, you have to take like two steps back and maybe dump down. What is the building? It's it's a container. It's a volume, and and you you cut it up like a cheese in different levels and floors. And every building around the world have to have apertures and windows because you need to get light in. And those are all common aspects of buildings around the world. And then you could, I don't know, almost like you have language translators on websites if you want to have it in english or spanish or japanese you could have the same like the regulations uh, <laughs> those languages because that's basically what it is <laughs> well oh, so, so 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 uh, the, another thing like wait 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 wait, 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 wait. <laughs> i have to have to add something there right so 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 you, you don't have to comment on it but i'll just tell you a little piece of history which you may you may or may not remember or know is that flux when it started off all right. I mean, that's I, one of my I trigger words. You just triggered me. Yeah. Okay. Well, so we won't need to talk about it too much, but but because because it covers a lot of this, right? There's a lot of learning there, which I unfortunately I don't think most people have kind of had the opportunity to learn from. And I was at some point relatively close to what was going on, or at least from the outside. But it, but this much I know is that when it was first started, right? One of the original ideas was that, to your point, Andre. Um, that you can basically, you know, convert a baseline to different, you know, environments. 
Um, and, I, and I sort of share this as a cautionary tale while also loving the, the implication and actually believing in it. They had this idea that, because the original idea was Flux, which is very attractive, was that you could automate the creation of high quality modular housing, right? That's not what people think it was, but originally it was a sustainable housing project, right? When Michelle Kaufman and Jen Carlisle founded it, they wanted it to be a way to, to generate high quality sustainable housing for the world's housing needs. And I, and I was very attached to that vision and I still am. Now, um, uh, what they thought they could do uh, was take what they call design seeds, right? The, the DNA of a design, which sounds a bit like what you're saying, Andre, about, the, you know, everyone needs apertures and, you know, whatnot. And then they could just, you know, plant the seeds in different environments and the different environments would allow the seeds to grow in different ways. <laughs> it just didn't work, right? They, they, went, they got a bunch of offices testing the seeds and it ends up being a bit like, you know, this is why, this is why it's ironic because you use the concept of language configurators is that language configurators do not work that way. They aren't rule-based, they're statistical, right? Yeah. So language translators and machine terms made a big split in about the early 2000s, thanks to Google, from rule-based generation to statistical corpus matching, meaning they don't even try to generate sentences from rules. They just say, well, that looks a bit like this. Is it similar and run it at such statistical enormity that it works out quite well and so um flux didn't have a statistical model we don't have enough you know machine learning to do that they were trying to use a rule-based generator and so there's a little piece of history to say if you have you know if your idea is we can you know put the same concept in different contexts and sort of translate it the flux version of that isn't like um isn't like google translate technically they don't have the same logic but anyway, that's a nice piece of sort of without being history. without being naive to say that I, I must believe because if you approach design or parametric design where you build up your definition, you generate uh, volumes or geometries, and then after you test or optimize towards regulation, then it will never work. But if you build up the hierarch how do you pronounce it hierarchical uh, yeah. system or structure of a building much similar to what uh, Topologic are doing, if you know that um, yeah. app. Then every single element knows that I am a wall situated on level two within the building, and I have these rooms wow. next to me. Yeah. And I have these rules or this language or translation connected to me that I must have this distance to X and Y and Z and so on. Um, then you build up all the rules uh, prehand, so to say, so you don't measure the, the, if it matches the regulations or not. Because as Clifton just said, why the hell would you make a building that not, doesn't live up to regulations? Well, I, I, I appreciate the, 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 the clarity of you explaining that. All I can say is that um, uh, I have some doubts about the overall approach, having studied it in great detail in linguistics and in music theory, and that that way of doing it, of building up the connect the connectivity rules has uh, not proven to work at anything beyond very, very simplistic models. But but I but I still believe in it. This is the, the great irony is that what's <laughs> happened in machine translation is that yeah. machine translation 
on that rule-based approach. It's had 50 years of attempts to get good at generating sentences. We were at the very beginning of that process in relation to kind of form generation or floor plan generation. But I still believe in the overall approach. I, I just It's just very hard to do it. At, at, at the levels of complexity that are absolutely unimaginable. Um, but, 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 but John, maybe, to- maybe, maybe we should discuss the differences between like a procedural algorithm and like a black box neural net which I don't think people really understand what the difference is. Sure. Sure. I mean, well, I mean, have a go. You guys share, 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 share with me your thoughts on that. Uh, Okay. All right. Well, I'll give, I'll give my crude interpretation. Uh, Okay. So uh, in procedural, we, which is test, with hundred percent procedural. um, We, we basically uh, say, okay, a designer would draw a property line. He'd then draw the setbacks. He'd then set his building mass um, he'd then place a parking garage, you know, and then you just sort of follow along what a designer would actually do. And then you recreate the algorithm to do exactly that. Mm. Um, we've been extremely successful building these, like they're really highly detailed now. Um, and test fit generated buildings could, could potentially be used, uh, as training data for a black box neural net algorithm. Um, and so black box is a little bit different, requires a lot of training data. Uh, it requires a scoring system on that data to say whether or not, um, the algorithm has generated something worth a damn or not. Um, and since architecture is basically a subjective, uh, kind of, uh, I don't know what, what it's more of a subjective if this building is, is good or bad. Uh, kind of industry. So you, you, you basically need to have a designer sitting there saying, yes, this building is good. No, this building is bad. Um, and I think my, my initial uh, uh, thoughts about Spacemaker, which I think a long time ago, they were trying to do this. They were trying to build an actual AI. Um, and I think they found out that it's way too complicated and hard to do it. So now they're doing procedural algorithms. Yeah. I mean, so, sorry, Karen, Andrew, are you going to say something? Um, no, no, I, I mean, I, I agree with Clifton's definitions of the two areas and I, I feel the whole, um, sector of machine learning and AI is very unexplored in AEC and it holds so much potential, uh, of everything outside the scope of procedural alg- algorithms or parametric definitions and all of that. So because then since buildings are so complex and what we're saying with the relation to what you mentioned with flux, it makes more sense to apply machine learning thinking or approaches to design problems than actually trying to encode all the logics along the process of, uh, I mean, designing a building. So yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, it is kind of the 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 high the the um it is the frontier of human knowledge right now, right? I mean, so so and it actually it kind of cascades down through pretty much all of the disciplines, in the sense that you know the kind of classical approach to to science is that you is you get your elements, your components, and you work out the rules by which they you know combine each other, and you know in physics and chemistry that's evolving, and we've tr- we've been trying that in music and language, and what's interesting is that it's clear we have the rules in hand. They are rules that seem to pertain to the domain of operation, but it's that somehow we can't use them to generate outputs, um, and so what's happened is that instead we switch to a statistical approach. I mean, so. 
all of the machine learning um, approaches, broadly speaking, are just statistic engines, right? And so, and so they work at different levels. But basically, what they do is they either statistically uh, generate from a kind of root set of guides, you know, outputs, or even more, they statistically generate the guides themselves, right? Um, and um, you know, so there's sort of different levels. And so, when the deeper you go in statistically generating the things, the, the the guidance that you're using to generate what you want to generate, the more it becomes what Clifton calls a black box because you just don't know at what level of abstraction and what level of sort of, you know, con- sort of, you know, generation of a model and an output mm-hmm. has a specific decision been made. And you cannot really retrace it because there's just so much data being bounced together. And the statistics are so weirdly, they end, they end up becoming basically it, it, it non-replicable. You cannot generate the same, the precise the same output. You can't work out why you made one precise decision over another. Um, but broadly speaking, you know, that approach, right, is definitely going to be applied. It's just, um, as Clifton says, you know, how much does it really help people They need to get involved in the process anyway, right? How far can you really take all that? I, I uh, think there's a lack of quality data to even train a good neural net right now. Right, exactly. Like yeah. we, you, have to, you have to have something like TestFit that can generate compliant buildings, and then you, you have to create it, I don't know, maybe... 90% of the data is synthetic, like test fit data. And then, you know, maybe 10% real buildings. Yeah. And then you, then you can train a neural net model from that, but uh, there's just, you know, when, when you're looking at training neural nets uh, to read uh, handwriting, <laughs> they have trillions of, of data points to, to look at. Right. And buildings, we just don't have that. And, even if we did, it's not an open database that uh, someone can query. I mean, not even not even Autodesk. You know, it's against their rules for for them internally to 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 look at uh, or to grab all the A three hundred and sixty data out there and build build the machine learning stuff on top of it. They just they can't do it because of the contracts. So you know who who is the biggest architecture firm? Gensler. Okay, Gensler is probably the closest to having enough data to actually do this. But they probably don't have the the vision to turn it into a product yeah, or something don't. revolutionary. They right? maximum. What have they got? They, they, maximum number of projects they've got is a, is a, is, a, is a few thousand. That's not close to enough. I mean, how many projects against it ever done? It can't be more than a few thousand. It just can't be, and that's not enough. <laughs> I mean, if you break it down by typologies, you've got a couple of hundred maximum within a relatively narrow typology. And then even then, mostly they're going to be a bit different. So I'm not even sure. I mean, anyway, I agree, I mean, my point is I agree with your point, right, is that the, yeah. that, that data set's not really out there. And it's a great frustration. But, 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 but John, John, there actually is another data set out there that anyone can access. Go- yes, I've seen that. Google, seen that. Google Maps. You can go look at. You can. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can probably query Starbucks and then grab like a image of every single Starbucks in the world. And yeah, then we've, build been looking, a- we've been looking at that. Open Street, Open Street Maps is quite interesting because you can extract enormous amounts of data from that data set. Yeah. But before, because you've got to run in a few minutes, but just to kind of finish off a couple of points, there's, there's so, so, so Andrew Human from, from Hyper raised a very interesting point, which is, is optimization inherently ethical or is there an opportunity and if you like a duty to bring in an ethical layer? Let's take just very basic, you know, car parking optimization. Is there an opportunity for, if you like, you know, the computational architects and their tools to say to developers, do you really want to optimize for parking or do you want to optimize for something else, right? Where do you situate 
yourself, your products, the industry in general around that question? What are we optimizing for and who? I'm going to answer that by saying architects have a fiduciary responsibility to their clients to create the best possible building that they could. And if they're using the worst possible tools to do that, like trace paper and a pencil, they're failing their fiduciary responsibility. Uh, so, you know, I think architects in general, they, they need to view technology as a way of providing a better solution to their, to their clients. I mean, you know, if you don't have 15 site plans to show them, you only have two, I think you're doing them a disservice. And I can't tell if you're answering the question or avoiding it. Are you saying that- I'm avoiding, I'm avoiding the question. <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> but, because, the, because it could be a way of answering it, which is to say, if you have these tools, you can make those alternative optimizations. If you don't, it won't matter anyway, right? You'll be pretty stuck. Well, I'll take that as a charitable interpretation of what you said and, and park it for now. Andre, what's your take? Is is Are the optimization tools good or bad or indifferent when it comes to the ethics of de- development choices? Uh, of course, I think they're good in, in in some cases where it's very useful to use them. But I don't know if I understand the question correctly, but I, of course, it's up to the architect and the office in order to guide the, the client in the process to kind of uh, like put all the pieces on the table and find the correct balance between the parameters and what's to give. So, okay, so your view is it doesn't change the, the, the baseline issue that architects have that role anyway to guide the client, right? No, what it offers is like what I was tying onto in the beginning of transparency in the communication is that instead of like previously you stand there as an architect and say, this is the best option you can get. Trust me, I'm an architect. Now you can communicate in terms of metrics, data, and graphics, and you can have a more open conversation about how, if, you, if we position this building over here, how does it affect or change, or if we add or remove a parking space? I think, that, I think that's about right. I, yep. do think that's about, I, think, I think that is that. So Clifton actually ended up answering the question in a very charitable way, whilst perhaps trying to avoid the implication of it, which is that if the client or anybody in the world says, hey, why aren't we doing this ethical thing or potentially ethical thing, if you don't have tools at your disposal that could give you that view or that option or that optimization, you won't be the people that ask. Right. So if a client says, hey, what about cycle parking or scooters or whatever, as opposed to you know, more private cars, if you have the right tool set, you can just press a button and say, well, here's the option. Right. That's quite interesting. E- ethics is, is something that accidentally happens more naturally because of the power of the tools. That's pretty cool. Final point, but just because, because you because I know you've got to go. Um, what's next? I mean, I mean, maybe for yourselves, but at least more broadly for the industry, what is the next thing that will happen that will help everyone get value out of these things, would you say? Um, I think take a look at what we're doing with Thornton Tomasetti. Um, it's a glimpse of what the future looks like. The coordination at SDs in the cloud, you know, you don't have to pick up a phone to figure out how big your columns need to be. Um, I think that's going to be really interesting to see play out um, and the implications for what it for what it means downstream. Um, to be clear, you, you say basically what you're saying is that you have a technical um, link to Thornton, Thornton Tomasetti tool. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's what we're working on right now. It's okay. you know instant column sizing. Um, and, for, and for the industry at large, other than your genius, what's next? <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know. It's kind of weird that I'm the leader in the industry uh, to begin with. Uh, I... Uh, I don't know. Um, 
I can only see what my customers tell me that they're, that they're struggling with. Um, and right now, um, housing is going to be a huge thing. that's going to get innovated. I mean, I think we're going to see work from home be basically, uh, something that needs to be designed for in apartment buildings. Um, and I think we'll see a, a, a sharp decline in office as a typology. It'll be more like larger coffee shops that your office just, you know, co-working, I think, uh, will turn into just a common conference room that we can all go to if we wanted to. Um, I mean, also like, uh, the older guys in the development world are seeing firsthand that yes, you can work from home and be productive. So we'll see a huge shift. That is a, at least that is in- a, a brutal phrase that we will revisit that at some later point. If somebody doesn't <laughs> challenge you on the specifics of, of that phrase, uh, Andre, what's next for you? What's next for the industry? Um, first for the industry, I believe in the next coming like five, 10 years, there will be a huge amount of new architects with high level of knowledge within coding. When I visit the universities here and I see all the students, uh, like scripting out complex definitions in grasshopper and no one is doing it kind of manually anymore. Uh, I'm very happy to see it. And that, that will be the big shift because then you don't have to spend time and effort within uh, companies to argue in favor for parametric design or coding. So, are you are you able to announce more about what you're doing next or is it still super secret? No, no, absolutely. We're uh, building up, uh, the vision is to build up like an environmental ecosystem of different tools and uh, digital tools. T- t- tell everyone the name, it's a cool name. Sorry? Tell everyone the name, it's a cool name. Yeah, okay, we're, we're labeled under uh, Data Trees, is the name of the company. And it's uh, <laughs> it's a big uh, salute to uh, Grasshopper, which all got us into parametrics because you're you're working uh, with Data Trees entirely in there. So um, it's- That's uh, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> What's next? Hey, hey, I, I, I wanted to apologize for one thing. I said earlier that I'm the leader. I, I, I meant to say I'm a leader. I'm um, not the leader, so it's a, it's what we call a Freudian slip, Clifton. Yeah, sorry, Don't worry. You're, you're, <laughs> you're, 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 everyone will understand. Um, just to custom, so what we want, what we want next, we want to improve the product, raise money, sell more, and kind of basic business terms. But what we really need to do, I think, to to contribute more is work out for ourselves what we want to connect to, and so that's part of our conversation, Clifton, which is that if we do quite crude optimizations at the level of floor plans and program should we you know add a you know configuration option say if you want to take configuration further these are the guys to connect to i'd love to work on that with both of you we've discussed that briefly in different ways and certainly the same is true for other types of optimizations and platforms so we're working on our own sort of connectivity issues i think for us and then into the broader industry issues i i think we will just continue to be quite aggressive about saying don't pay us particularly for this technology, pay us for the value implications for your project and let us have some of that back, right? We want to be attached to the broader value proposition that we are optimizing for. And that's one of the ways in which they know we're really committed to it because we get value at the back end in, as I say, in the film industry. Um, and, um, you know, I think that that's part of the uh, the overall narrative in the industry at large, which is I think that the the industry has to start thinking about what is the value added of any of this stuff, right? Where is the essence or the goal uh, of the design, architectural design and built design community? Is it to technically fix things? Is it to aesthetically guide things? Or is it something more 
I don't know, measurable is a bit too aggressive, but is it something more concrete in value contribution terms? And I think that that is going to be a, um, uh, whether it's actually outputs or even just workflow and collaboration, I think, you know, society and clients are asking, hang on a second, what is it you guys do again? And why should we pay you so much? And why are you important and get on magazines? And what are you actually doing? I think that is going to get more exposed. Okay, Absolutely. guys, it's been a Tremendous yep. fun, but I have a feeling that we didn't even begin to open the can of worms. It's like we kind of go, sniffed, go another several hours, but I got to bounce. We sniffed at the can of worms, but the worms are all still in there. Anyway, um, let's let's do more of this. Um, sequel. Thanks so much. Yeah, yeah. Let's Love do a sequel. <laughs> Take care. Lovely okay. To talk to you. Speak all to right. you guys soon. Bye. Bye.